Hello and welcome to the CRE with CBC Worldwide Podcast. This is Tom Hershey from Coldwell Banker Commercial. And joining me today is Michael Pink, the president of Left Lane Ventures, a developer of boutique multifamily urban infill projects, ranging in size from 12 to 75 units. Michael is here to chat about how Left Lane's unique development strategy is benefiting communities and businesses alike. Now, Michael began his career as an attorney. I won't hold that against him, serving in the roles of associate, partner, and then of counsel at Best in Flanagan, where he practiced commercial and construction litigation for a decade. In 2000, Michael became CFO and COO for Mosquito, a designer and manufacturer of private label consumer goods for nationally known brands. Later, he started West Emory, which sells home decor and stationary products through national retailers. Michael earned his undergrad degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and JD from the University of Minnesota Law School. Michael, thank you for joining us today. When I read about this concept, I was instantly intrigued. I'm really eager to hear more about your company and your rather unique approach to multifamily living. So let's get started. Michael, please tell us a little bit about why you started Left Lane and your role as president. Well, I started Left Lane in the summer of 2016, and the story is kind of interesting. At the time, I owned a uh, consumer packaged goods company that was based in the uptown neighborhood of Minneapolis. And over the prior decade, that neighborhood saw a ton of multifamily development. And as I watched that development go up and I watched the neighborhood change, I frankly was kind of disenchanted with what I saw. And kind of what I saw was rather than the neighborhood being enhanced by the development that was going up, it felt like the neighborhood was being degraded by the development that was going up. And kind of thought to myself, man, we need to do better than this. And as it happened, I had been doing what I was doing for about 15 years and the entrepreneurial pursuit had kind of ceased to exist and uh, it was time for a new challenge. And so I said, I'm going to jump in. This is what I'm going to do. That's how it started. So uh, I started my career in real estate as a broker and I sold apartments because I lived in apartments and figured, okay, I know apartments now. I've been in one. So why specifically did you choose to develop apartments and not some other aspect of commercial real estate? It's a great question. I, you know, in my former business, consumer packaged goods, the way we went about deciding what we were going to design and develop was by uh, essentially shopping at retail and looking at shelves and trying to figure out where the white space was. And, you know, we defined white space as places on the shelf where either product that should exist, didn't exist, or where we thought we could do a better job of the product that was on the shelf today. And when I decided to go into real estate, really kind of the same principle applied, just looking around and trying to determine where the white space was. And uh, in my estimation, the white space was in multifamily. That was the place that I saw anyway, where I felt that there was room for a differentiated product and frankly, a better product than what was being built at that time. So why small? We always hear Bigger is better, more amenities, parking, gym, big swimming pool. Yeah, all that's true. Big. Why small? You know, I think I start with the proposition that not everybody wants to live in a big 
development. Not everybody wants to take an elevator up to the 15th or 20th or 23rd floor. Not everybody wants to walk down a mile long hallway to get to their apartment door. And so, you know, developers tend to gravitate toward doing big projects because big projects are, I think, you know, generally believed to be more uh, lucrative for developers because they are. So as a consequence, most of what gets built is big. And as a result, not much that gets built is small, which means that there's an opportunity there because other people aren't doing it. So you can build a differentiated product. You have less competition for sites because most people aren't looking for sites as small as the sites that I'm looking for. You have a greater opportunity to get into highly amenitized neighborhoods where things tend to be more built out, again, leaving smaller opportunities for infill. And, you know, for me personally, uh, I've always gravitated toward wanting to do projects that are contextually appropriate to the neighborhoods they're going into. And more often than not, that means small. Smaller tends to be lend itself more easily to being contextually appropriate relative to its surroundings. So I imagine your margins have to be thinner then. You know, yeah, as a developer, my margins are thinner. I don't think our investors suffer any relative to, <laughs> to a larger development. And as, yeah, so yeah, our margins are thinner and there's less room for error. So a couple of questions then. You mentioned infill. How, first, how do you find a location? And then is there a like lot size or location that works best? Is it a, you know, square lot? Is it a triangular lot? Is it recessed? You know, the first question, how do you find, you know, we rely on sellers and their brokers approaching us with, with sites. Um, obviously we're constantly scoping and on the lookout for sites. And that's primarily how we identify them, either through being contacted by sellers or uncovering them ourselves. And oftentimes it starts with a site that's for sale. And then more often than not, we need to build on that site. So we're then approaching neighbors essentially to say, hey, will you sell? So that's how we go about finding the sites. You know, for us, again, because we prefer to build smaller projects that are less highly amenitized than a lot of our larger competitors. The neighborhood is the amenity. The neighborhood shops are the amenity, the the bars, the restaurants, the coffee shops, the um, small locally owned retail. So we tend to look for sites that are in highly walkable, highly amenitized neighborhoods. We see that as the, as one of the primary amenities of our buildings. And then, you know, from a lot size standpoint, you know, we have a, a product type that we build that's generally 12 units. And we oftentimes believe they're not build those projects on what were formerly single family home sites. And really all we need is a lot that's 41 feet wide, at least 41 feet wide and 125 feet deep, preferably with an alley in the back for those sites. For our larger sites, they tend to range in size from 14,000 to 25,000 square feet in total. So again, going back to what I said earlier, much smaller sites than what most of my competitors are looking for, which again allows us to build where many others cannot. So 12 units, is that like your sweet spot then? No, we, we, we really have kind of two product types. We, we do these 12 unit projects 
generally with zero parking. So in that case, too, we're looking f- to be um, in close proximity to primary transit corridors and bus lines, mass transit. And then from there, we generally jump up to more kind of the 40 to 60, 65 unit range. And those projects, we typically do include parking. We do have some level of amenity. Our amenities tend to be smaller in scope, but higher in quality and design. So where we may have, um, you know, we have a fitness room, we'll have a community room, we'll usually have a lobby slash co-working space. Those those spaces tend to be smaller than you see in the larger buildings, but they also tend to be filled with high high quality FF&E and, and a, a great attention to detail relative to the design. So in, in looking at design, you know, <laughs> typically large apartment buildings really stick out. They don't they don't really blend in with the neighborhood aesthetic. Is that something that you're consciously looking at is, OK, this is, you know, a neighborhood lined with cute old businesses. Do you try to blend in or is there like a, a sweet spot between blending in and sticking out just a little? You know, we're really trying we're trying to blend in, at least from a contextual standpoint. So I'll give you an example. We just recently finished a project here in Minneapolis called the Aubrey. The Aubrey sits on Nicollet Avenue and on the opposite side of the street from from our from our new building are four vintage apartment buildings. You know, they're built in brick and stone, classic center entry with units on either side of it. And we took our cues for our design from from those designs. So we built a modern version of that type of building directly across the street. So you enter at the center of the building, you have units on either side of that center. We have stone, you know, our base is stone with brick above. So, you know, again, taking a modern version on, on a vintage project product across the street. And that's generally what we're doing everywhere we go. We're, we're taking our design cues from the surrounding neighborhood, whether that's the type of brick we're going to use or the um, scale of the building we are trying to fit in. And from a design standpoint, I wanted to build projects that stand the test of time so that you're not looking at this building 10 years from now and saying, oh, that building was clearly built circa 2022. (laughs) Uh, I like to call them iconic. We want to build buildings that are that are iconic. They stand the test of time. Yeah, that have character. So is it just the internal aesthetics? You just mentioned that, you know, the high end finishes within the buildings that are amenitized are the units. Yeah, I've been in a lot of apartment buildings over my life. And, and you know, essentially, you've been in one apartment. You've been in almost all of them because they're typically boxes. Yep. Is that something that you're trying to stand out as well from an interior standpoint? Yes, absolutely. I have a saying that, you know, with multifamily being as prolific as it is today, I mean, you drive down the street of any, any major metropolitan area and you see a crane and there's an apartment being built. And so it becomes really easy for a tenant in any one of those new buildings a year later to see another building opening up down the street and saying, well, hey, I can go down the street, get my two months, you know, free rent as a concession and replicate exactly what I have here two blocks away. And one of our primary thesis is, well, let's provide our tenants with a differentiated product. So when the new building does go up two blocks away, they can't replicate the unit they're currently living in by picking up and walking two blocks down the street. 
And that differentiation starts on the exterior and carries its way all the way through the common areas and into the units themselves. So within the units, you know, you just said, you just talked about one of the things that we try to pay really careful attention to is we want our units to feel like homes. So we try to have unique spaces within our units. So you walk into a lot of new construction multifamily today and the kitchen bleeds into the living space, which bleeds into the to the bathroom, you know, it's just it's just kind of one big box, as you as you indicated, and we try hard in our designs to create individual rooms. So that you walk into a front entry, and that gives way to a kitchen, and that gives way to a a living space. So that you, like a home, your apartment actually has defined spaces and rooms. And then we do other things like uh, include a lot of built-in cabinetry so maybe instead of a front hall closet we will have built in wardrobe closets that look so that the front entry looks custom finished like you like you were walking into a custom home we generally put more lighting into our units than our our competitors do we upgrade our plumbing fixtures to give the unit a, a, a higher finish quality We'll do like silly stuff like today every day you, every unit you walk in today that's new generally has a white backsplash we'll move away from the white backsplash and do something other than that just just to make mm-hmm. it unique it, you know in, in listening to you describe these so prior to living where i do now my wife and i lived in san francisco and we lived in the marina district in a you know 19 late teens early 20s era apartment and the apartment buildings, if you've ever been to San Francisco, are mixed within the houses in the neighborhoods. And, and just listening to you describe it, it, it brings back that feeling of, OK, you're in an apartment building, but it feels like your home and you're part of more part of a neighborhood of a community. So I, I got to believe the the tenants that that you attract are you said amenitized areas are frequenting the local businesses are are feeling like they're part of the local community yeah that's the idea right like the large apartment projects that get built today i like to refer to them as kind of self-contained silos like everything you need down to your fitness facility is in your building there's no reason to ever leave your building you can do your yoga there you can do your spin class there you can you can entertain your friends there you got your pool there. Like you literally do not need to leave your building. And so for us, that's the whole idea is creating buildings that are contextually appropriate that where our, our, our tenants get out onto the street and frequent the neighborhood businesses and interact with their neighbors who very, yeah, you're right, may very well live in a home right next door. And as a result, they get integrated into the fabric of the community. And as a result, they are more likely to stay in our buildings longer, which of course lowers our operating expenses and makes us able to build a smaller building, even though a lot, you know, from a operating efficiency standpoint, on a per unit basis, they're more expensive to run. But if you have less turnover, obviously that's a huge expense. So right, that's <laughs> kind of the sweet spot you're trying to achieve. So, you know, being part of the community, have businesses reacted well? Do you do you see that, you know, do you feel like businesses are benefiting from the addition of the properties? And and not only that, how have, you know, the municipalities, I, I know you've done project in Denver. How have the municipalities reacted to what you're doing? 
the businesses question is, 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 an, is, a, is a great one. We, you know, when we're trying to identify a site, oftentimes it can, an attractor for us could be as something as simple as a restaurant that is a, a neighborhood institution or perhaps a, a larger you know, city institution where, that people frequent. Because to us, that's the seeds of a great neighborhood, oftentimes, right? That neighborhood gathering mm-hmm. spot. This project that I was speaking of earlier in Minneapolis, the Aubrey that we finished, we selected that site for exactly that reason. There were two kind of long-time neighborhood establishments that sit on the on the end of that street, you know, that I took my kids to when they were growing up all the time, and I frequent with my friends. And you know, we made our investment there, and then there was right across the street from us. I had mentioned that there's a bunch of vintage apartment buildings, and then right next to that, there's a bunch of one-story commercial. And we started that project, construction of that project in December of 2020. Yeah, December of 2020. And over the course of the next year and a half, we saw all of the storefronts across the street from us get rehabbed and retenanted, which is, I have to believe, is a direct result of the investment that we made across the street. And so suddenly our project is acting as a catalyst for additional investment the addition of amenities to the neighborhood, you know, as an incubator. And yeah, businesses get pretty excited about that. And we find as, as our reputation has grown and we become more established, we do find that we are very well received when, when, when we show up in a neighborhood. True of, of even of, of the neighbors, not, not the business owners, but the people who actually live there. Right. Who are, you know, no one's super psyched about having an apartment building next to them. Um, <laughs> but on balance, I think generally speaking, that once we have the opportunity to get in front of neighbors and tell our story and share our projects, the general consensus is, well, if we have to have an apartment building here, we're sure glad it's these guys that are doing it. Yeah, I, I like the being part of the neighborhood approach to development rather than taking over the neighborhood approach to development. And that brings up something you said earlier, and and that was that a lot of times there's like a single family residence on a property. So if you find a site and there's, you know, let's say a building already on it that may be vacant or maybe, you know, just needs to be torn down and given a new one, is that something that that you'll go ahead and and take a look at? Yeah, most everything, most every site we build on had a structure on it prior prior to our development going in i will not take down a beautiful old building i just won't do it kind of goes against my ethos but i am more than fine taking down a dilapidated structure that was never really of any architectural significance in the first instance and that is 99 percent of the time what we are doing have you ever considered taking a as you said a beautiful old structure with some sort of history and making that a part of the development or would that Uh, just not work yeah actually we're doing that right now we have a project that we will be starting construction on this fall in northeast minneapolis and that's funny that's a great question we are we bought a site that has three existing duplexes and about a fifteen thousand square foot commercial building and the commercial building sits on the site and the duplexes kind of wrap around it and we looked at potentially partnering with another developer in town to build this project. And I, I spoke to a few of my contemporaries around town and shared the site with them. And 
gathered their thoughts and everybody's immediate reaction was, well, we're taking the commercial building down, right? And my response was, no, we're actually saving the commercial building. <laughs> commercial building was built in the early 1900s and is very much a part of the fabric of that, of that neighborhood. It's ugly, to be honest with you. It's, it's not <laughs> the most attractive building uh, ever built. It's probably the ugliest building on the block or within several blocks. But it's part of the fabric of that community. And it shouldn't come down. And so we wound up going it alone primarily because, or among the reasons why we went it alone was because everyone else we talked to wanted to take that building down to put more units on that site. And I personally think that we get a better project on that site by keeping the building standing and integrating our development into that site. And that, that old building provides a patina and a, and a cool contrast to our, our new development immediately next door. So we are actually literally wrapping um, our building around the existing building. And we're creating that, that space that sits between the buildings we're using to create a really cool courtyard space for our tenants and, and for the neighbors, much like what you would see. You know, when you go to Europe, you see all kinds of really cool spaces between the buildings, mm-hmm. um, cool courtyard spaces. We don't do that enough here in the U.S. And this particular project that I'm sharing with you is a, is, provides an, an awesome opportunity to do just, just that. So let's talk a little bit about the development cycle. I mean, when you find something from the day you find it until the day it's done, is there like a typical time frame or is it just really vary from community to community? Yeah, for us, it's about two years, let's say two years to 24 months, 26 months, generally about a year to get our entitlements and get a shovel in the ground and then generally somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 14 months to build the actual project. And when it's done, are you managing it or do you contract with a management company to do that? <laughs> I want to say, hell no. No, we are, not, <laughs> we are not managing it. I do not want to be in the apartment management business. I think that's a completely different business and a really hard one to boot. Uh, so no, we, we contract with third-party management companies to, to manage our buildings, which raises another challenge to building small scale. You know, if you build a hundred plus units and up, it's not hard to find a really good, sophisticated third-party apartment management company to, to manage your project for you. But if you're building at the scale that we're building at, that becomes a, a much bigger challenge. And so have you been able to find companies in different markets to be able to partner with? Yeah, we've been pretty successful and you have to work really hard at it to, fi- to find that part. <laughs> Generally, what you're doing is you're finding a partner who is interested in sophisticating their operation to meet the demands of a class A tenant. Because, you know, our buildings are small in size, but, you know, they are class A. They're nice. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're nice. And that tenancy comes with a certain set of expectations that need to be met by, by the management company. Do the deals, do your deals have a life cycle? I mean, is, is this like hold forever kind of thing or do you? I build and sell. <laughs> we started off thinking that we would buy, build, and sell. And the very first project I did, we actually recently sold much to my chagrin. And we did it because we told our investors on the way in that we would. And we were you know, in year X and we were at year X. So I felt it was my responsibility to sell the building. I have since come to realize that development is hard. 
and takes a lot of time and energy. And that, you know, in my estimation anyway, that the payback that you get from, you know, a near immediate sale, right, buy the site, develop it, build it, stabilize it, sell it, you know, at the size that we build, frankly, it's just not worth it. It's much rather hold on to it and, and ride that cash flow and, you know, do the cash out refinance, you know, et cetera, et cetera, for, for years to come and, and then make a substantially more significant profit. 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, 20 years down the road. Gotcha. So you're looking at long, long term then. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing about long term is that when you are building for the, when the, if you're not a merchant builder, you're not thinking, I'm going to turn around and sell this thing in three years. You can make, you can build, a, in my opinion anyway, a, a far higher quality product because you don't need to worry about what your return is going to be two years from now or three years from now, you're looking at what your return is going to be a decade from now and mm-hmm. give that building a lot more time to season and, and mature. And, and as a result, I think you just wind up with, you're, you're building a better product again. Right. I, I think others may disagree, but. <laughs> so, so I have to ask this question, you know, we're, we're in the business of brokering commercial real estate. If, you know, when you do sell, if I am the broker that brought you the land, let's say, are you going to, and I keep in contact with you. I don't just forget you exist. I keep you up to date with market information. You know, when you do think about selling or, you know, whether it's five years or 15 years down the road is, is, are you going to rely on that broker or do you then go out to the market? We generally, if we're going to sell and as I explained before, we don't, have that much opportunity to engage a broker on the sell side. But on the few occasions that we have, we generally approach brokers that specialize in multifamily. Mm -hmm. So if it happens that the broker that sold me the site in the first instance fits that bill, they would certainly get my call. But, But I think, frankly, that's not often, very often the case. But where I do see the benefit of that relationship is that, you know, we have we have commercial brokers, especially here in Minneapolis, who are well familiar with what we do from whom we feel a lot of calls. And I do think that that becomes a very valuable relationship over time because we can have really candid and honest conversations on the front end about, you know, our level of interest in a particular site. And I think it just, it, it, it helps us get to a close far more efficiently and far easier when that relationship gets developed over time. And, and frankly, those brokers come to understand like what we're looking for and we become a long-term customer as a result. Um, so I think that's where the real value comes in is, is right. developing that relationship and that trust so that there's uh, an engagement that takes place over over the course of years and years and years and years. And, and likewise, we come to trust that broker too when they call us because we know after a certain period of time that they're not going to call us with something that we're probably not going to have any interest in. That if they're calling us, it's probably something worthy of our attention. Yeah, they're just not throwing everything at the wall to see what it sticks. Right, right. So one of the things I like to to ask is, how do you see, I don't know if this is truly something that's disrupting the multifamily industry, but I think it's something that's improving it. So do, do you view what you're doing as really as a disruptor, or do you think it's maybe improving it causing big developers to say, hmm, maybe we should, you know, take a little more care with our aesthetics. I would like to think that it 
forces others to up their ant, you know, raise the bar. You know, to your point, like, is it a disruptor? I'm not sure it's a disruptor, but it certainly is a differentiator. And yeah, I, I, I think, I do think that it actually over time will force others in those markets to raise, raise their bar and rethink the way that they approach their development. You know, the 12 unit projects that we're doing are, again, I'm not sure I would call them a disruptor, but they apparently are thought to be pretty unusual as people from other markets around the country are, are looking at them. I'm getting, feeling a lot of questions asking me, you know, how are you doing this? How are you able to make this, this work? And I honestly had to kind of reverse my reverse engineer my way into figuring out why that what we were doing was so difficult. And I think that, that, that is largely because I didn't come from the development background. And so no one ever told me that you're not supposed to be able to build 12 unit buildings that the, <laughs> that the economics don't work. And as a result, it just never occurred to me not to try. And I think that those, those buildings themselves, strangely enough, become great competition for the larger developments around us. Because again, what we're doing is just so different. And so there's not many of them around. And so people tend to gravitate to them if that's what they're interested. If they're, living, if they're interested in living in a more contextually appropriate, more highly designed, you know, they walk up to the residence and it's a building that they can be proud of to live in. We're a great option. You know, this conversation has been great, Michael, and I really want to thank you for joining me. You're, as you describe this, what I feel, I actually, as I said, lived in a 12-unit building. And living there, there, there were no amenities. But, you know, it was a cool interior. Each unit was very unique there because it was built so long ago. There were built-ins. You know, a lot of these things you're talking about, yep. it's like everything that's old is new again. And I never felt, you know, living in that area, I never felt as if I was a renter in an apartment. I felt like I live in this really cool building and it's a sense of community in the building. It's a sense of community. We knew our neighbors. We frequented the local stores and businesses. And I see what you're doing and it really brings that to mind. And I want to thank you for joining us, talking a little about Left Lane Ventures and what you do. Michael, if somebody listening has a piece of land they want to sell you, how do our followers reach out to you? Well, I can be reached by email at uh, M as in Michael, pink like the color at leftlaneco.com. I'm also on Instagram at Left Lane Ventures or Twitter at pinkmhp. All right. Well, thank you again. As a reminder to our listeners, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to and like the CRE with CBC Worldwide podcast on your favorite pod app. And also be sure to check out some of our older episodes. There's lots of great stuff there, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. This is Tom Hershey with Cobalt Banker Commercial. Thanks for tuning in.